ночной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Just remember, all you people out there, if you listen to the SRB podcast quite regularly, just remember, if you like what you hear here, join the SRB table of ranks by going to my Patreon page and becoming a monthly patron. It doesn't take much. $5 gets you an SRB shot glass and a refrigerator magnet. For $10, you get all that plus a promo code for 30% off of books from the University of Pittsburgh Press. The SRB podcast is a one-man operation, and your support will help keep it going. So don't hesitate. Get your wallet out and go to seansrussiablog.org and become a patron. Today's podcast is different than past episodes in that it's mostly not about Eurasia. But when I was looking to talk to someone about women in the Russian Revolution, I got the opportunity to interview Sheila Robotham, and I jumped at the chance. For those who don't know, Sheila Robotham is a key figure in, Brit in British second-wave feminism and one of the initiators of the women's liberation movement in the UK. In this wide-ranging interview, we talk about her life, experiences, political influences, her activism, her ideas, and feminism. There's also a bit about the Russian Revolution in there as well. Sheila Robotham is, a, is known internationally as a historian of feminism and, a rat, and radical social movements. She's the author of the groundbreaking books Women, Resistance, and Revolution, Women's Consciousness, Man's World, and Hidden from History, among several others published by Verso. Here's Sheila Robotham. So in, in 2008, in a profile in The Guardian, the, the author called you one of Britain's most important, if unshowy, feminist thinkers and a key figure of, second, of the second wave. The author said that you were among the organizers of the landmark event, the first National Women's Liberation Conference in 1970, which led to the announcement of the four still hugely relevant demands of the movement, equal pay, equal education and opportunity, 24-hour nurseries, free contraception, and abortion on demand. So I thought we'd start by having you talk about your background, your radicalization, and your intellectual and political influences. Well, I, I, I came from a lower middle-class family in uh, Leeds. Um, the politics of my family were, uh, you know, kind of conservative. My father worked as a salesman uh, for an engineering firm. And he'd um, come from a country family and gone to night school. And then he'd gone to um, India with my mother. They, well, In fact, they weren't married. They ran off to India together where he'd worked as an engineer. So they'd had a lot of ups and downs before I was born. But in the 1950s, they were doing quite well because the colliery industry was flourishing. And they sent me off to a Methodist boarding school on the uh, east coast by the, near the sea in Yorkshire, where I was brought up. And it um, had quite a big influence on me because I eventually I got a, a really good history teacher. Her, politically, she was a liberal, a member of the Liberal Party, which was kind of rather 
left wing from my family's point of view. Um, and she got me interested in, uh, in, in really in social history. I didn't really even know the name of it, but uh, I liked the history of people's daily lives. And so I, I, I loved history and I also loved English and it was a bit of a toss up when it came to go to university, which I would do, but this teacher uh, influenced me to do history, and uh, I did. Uh, before uh, that happened, I'd become a bit aware of social and political events because in 1956, I was um, 13, and I saw on the television, which had arrived when I was 11, these people marching from Hungary in a procession who were leaving Hungary as, re as refugees. And I got really upset about it and sent my pocket money to one. <laughs> and then there was um, the movement for civil rights, which we saw also on our television. I, uh, was, I got very affected by that and bought a, a, a Pete record and <laughs> well, anyway, I was kind of heading towards dissidence, and then I, it really took the form more of beats rather than politics, because American um, beats and uh, you know the kind of exciting lifestyle was was uh, news was was reaching even my bit where my school was. I think my brother took Esquire, and I think that was how I first heard about the beats from his esquire so then i i put um, a picture of the beats on the school um we had a, a literary society <laughs> notice board so i put that up and the other big influence from america was the music because of rock and roll and that got us interested in rhythm and blues and began to realize about uh, you know that added to the the existence of the civil rights movement, we got an idea about black America. And then I was in Paris uh, just before 68, um, well, but in the early uh, 60s before going to university. But even at that time, there were big demonstra student demonstrations because of Algeria. Um, but I, I still, although I was personally aware of class because in England it, the northern accent was when I went to I went to Oxford I got to place at Oxford and when I got to Oxford the students mocked my accent because I had a, a northern accent and um, so I kind of was a bit rebellious and then in my second year uh, two things happened one was my my boyfriend was um, left wing. He too had been he'd been at Berkeley actually, and was influenced by the movement in the early sixties there. And also, I got a tutor called Richard Cobb, who specialised in French revolutionary history and knew about the French history from below. That was very that was good. Um, we also we faced really contradictory attitudes to sex. This is the early 1960s in Britain because, um, in fact, I've, I've just watched um, uh, 
the film of um, uh, the last picture show. And although it's set earlier, it did remind me, I mean, that, that you were meant to remain a virgin. But if you insisted on remaining a virgin, you were accused of being frigid and things. But it was impossible. It was a no-win situation. And anyway, I was questioning all these things. But we were completely ignorant about uh, contraception because nobody told us anything. You know, we didn't have access to information. Um, and it was because of this boyfriend at university that I went to see a left-wing doctor in London and got a diaphragm. And that, that was very important because before then, um, there was just complete terror, really, about sex. So we had this kind of weird situation in which we were meant to be completely free as women, but we weren't. And it took a long time, really, until the, the very late 60s, um, in which we used to talk to one another, but it seems like private conversations. It didn't seem anything to do with politics as we knew it. So that was how I started to uh, question both my position as a woman and begin to wonder about where women were historically, because I hadn't come across them very much in the history that I'd studied. Let me let me talk about because it, it sounds like I mean your your life story is one where you're just at a time where a, a lot of people are questioning and reacting and also resisting the status yes, quo. It, it seemed it just seemed to be part of the ether. We didn't really think about it. Yeah, yeah, and and so you know, as I as I said in the in the Guardian from the Guardian passage you're considered a key figure in second wave feminism in Britain. So talk about what was second wave feminism and what role did you play in it? And, you know, you just talked about how you had these private conversations and the, the kind of organizing didn't really start till like the late sixties. So talk about what second wave feminism was. Well, we, we were influenced by Simone de Beauvoir and many of us had been influenced by Marxism in a wide sense. So we were reading not only Marx, but people like Gramsci and Fanon and Henry Henri Lefebvre. Um, so we, and Sartre, of course. So, and, uh, I also read Reich. So we had some sort of clues that there was, uh, you know, a whole area of culture and consciousness and, daily life, those ideas were coming into our view of left politics. Um, but for a long time, we didn't actually create any organized groups. And through, through really 68, there were just rumors. We heard about women's liberation developing in the United States and also uh, women in Germany. And... Um, when I I worked on a revolutionary paper that was edited by Terry Kelly called Black Dwarf, and um, I argued that we ought to have a, an issue about women. And in, in those days, it, it was thought that somebody who was a man was probably more knowledgeable. So they, they had this guy 
who'd written an article about Reich and things. So I was allowed to help him. But I was such an eager beaver. I got so many articles and things. And we did this um, at the end of 1968, uh, uh, an issue of Black Dwarf called uh, The Year of the Militant Woman, which was a, was a bit sort of ambitious. And I wrote then from that a, a longer pamphlet that was published by uh, Mayday Manifesto called Women's Liberation and the New Politics. And and what were some of the things you were addressed in these papers? I mean, taking the title of a, a militant woman, um, what was the, the themes? Well, we had practical things like equal pay and an article on that and by a trade union woman, which I got. But she also stressed it wasn't just equal pay, but a wider view of rights. So we had the sort of equal rights stuff in. And then I wrote a much more personal essay, which was about the personal containment, the ways in, in which it was so difficult to raise things within a, a left um, context. And actually, uh, an American man who's part of the new left called Henry Wirtis, who was in Britain, um, was really helpful in that because he went to a meeting, which I went to, which was about the Vietnam War. We were trying to, um, well, I was trying to organize what we call a jumble sale. I don't think it's called that in America. It's when you take old things and sell them to try to get money for things. And I'd done lots of these jumble sales in the Young Socialist <laughs> Party. I thought this was sensible. So we hadn't got any money. But the guys thought that it was a pretty pathetic and not very revolutionary thing. So they never booked the room. So me and my friend Mary held it in the house where we lived. In our, where we, so all these people came to, to the house for the jumble sale. And there were a lot of, in this working class part of Hackney, there were lots of old women who were very keen on jumble sales and who would kind of pour in, really, wherever you did it. Um, so, but at that meeting, Henry, who gave me a lift back, said to me, he'd seen the ways in which, when we said anything, the men would kind of go off and ignore it, you know. <laughs> and he pointed out to me the kind of micro ways in which power was being <laughs> operating within that little group. And I kind of sort of instinctively experienced it, but to have a man explain what other men were doing was actually really helpful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, in, in a lot of contexts, not much has changed <laughs> in this sense. But it was often the case that some woman would say something and then the guys would ignore it and then so they'd suddenly remember it, and re but they'd remember it as their man had said it. So they would say, as Jerry says, or whatever. Right. I don't think that much has changed either. <laughs> <laughs> so I think we, 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 we kind of got onto those um, areas of power that are not avert power, which are about silencing. So I... Um, I wrote um, about that the problems of, of how it was difficult to um, assert hegemony, I guess, and uh, it still it still is, I think, a bit. I, I mean, not as women, I think, are much more confident in the public arena, but uh, 
there still are some of those problems. Yeah, definitely. So your book, um, Women, Resistance and Revolution, A History of Women in Revolution in the Modern World, was published in 1974. Well, it um, wasn't. That's, I made really? a mistake. It was published in 1972. And that puts it a bit earlier, you know, because I, I'd started to think about it already uh, towards the end of 1968. And then um, I began really seriously in 1969. And it came about through a friend who'd been one, who was to be one of the people who organized the Oxford conference called Roberta Hunter Henderson. And she had contact with someone who was left working at Penguin. And he actually uh, left, but he commissioned uh, me to do a book because, well, I'd been teaching in, in a, what was called a further education college. There were engineering students and, you know, young working class apprentices and people who worked on London transport. It was young, young people were sent for what was called day release and they did sort of liberal studies. And I taught in East London. And I discussed um, how to do a book that would get over ideas about social revolution with these uh, boys I was teaching, because the books and also the student, it was called the Revolutionary Socialist Student Federation, it didn't reach out to uh, boys like that who were apprentices or to the girls who were coming they were not usually craft apprentices like the boys, but they were hairdressers and um, typists, and they they were allowed to come from their work for one day of education um, after they'd left school. So quite a few people on the left started teaching liberal studies in further education, and I did, and I, I got very involved with these East London young working class people who were actually only a bit younger, really, than me. <laughs> but I felt immensely old because I was in my early twenties and they were uh, sixteen. Oh wow! Oh, they okay. That's that's. I I figured they'd be somewhere around eighteen-ish at least. Um. So in 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 terms of the the inspiration, I mean, you just spoke about the you know to you teaching in in these courses with these working class people, and you want to try to connect to them. But what? How did this book? come out like what what made you yeah. focus on well, women the original in revolution book that i worked out with my apprentices was rejected it was meant it had really we boiled down concepts to particular phrases that were put in very direct language about why you needed revolutionary transformation but they it never came about because it was rejected by penguin but this gave me a contact in penguin through uh, roberta's friendship so that was how I put in a proposal which eventually was accepted by uh, the man who took over called he was called Neil Middleton and he was um, a Catholic Christian socialist who was really really important to me in the, helping me you know with these early books and I'd written this enormous long screed which was about the whole of revolutions, you know, in the scope of women resistance to revolution. And then I had other stuff about the modern women's liberation movement, plus 
the what later became Woman's Consciousness, Man's World. And with his advice, I divided it into two. So that that was how I came about to, you know, writing two two books. It was very arrogant because it was basically saying, you know, every revolution has failed, but we've come along now and we're going to do it. Right, right, right. <laughs> now, I want to I read the first passage of the book because I think it's really interesting and have you explain it. So you begin your book with the following. Um, this is not a proper history of feminism and revolution. Such a story necessarily belongs to the future and will anyway be a collective creation. Instead, I have tried to trace the fortunes of an idea. It is a very simple idea, but one with which we have lost touch, that the liberation of women necessitates the liberation of all human beings. So what do you mean by this simple idea where liberation of women necessitates the liberation of all human beings? And and we're, and talk about the the fact or the idea you had of we losing touch of it, this simple idea. Yes. But I I think there's also the first bit, which is I, I'm glad that I could actually understand that, no, you know, there's not going to be one book on women and feminism and revolution, which is a bit how people saw it then. I mean, I remember some man saying to me when I did Hidden from History, well, You've already done one book on it, you know, why are you doing another one? And I I already could see that it was going to come out of the movement, that we were going to, through having a movement, we were going to have an impact on the culture, and that would be something that lots of women were going to do. The the, the so-called simple idea um, I got from um, people like Fourier and then Later on in the 19th century, it, it reappears in some bits of Marxism um, and is um, often then put round the other way as saying that you have to have the, the revolution first and then you can think about women. But there, there was also that more utopian emphasis um, which is there in, in, in Fourier and in... Um, People like uh, Virginia Woodhull in in America too, um, and sort of I think in the thing that Eleanor Marx wrote with um, her lover Edward Avering, which um, stresses the significance of a specific uh, autonomous area of necessarily organizing and movement for women much more than you would get in um, Marx and Engels. I think um, that uh, in the later Marx it tends to be stressed that the, you have to change the society and then think about women. But in the early Marx there's more um, of that sort of Fourier influence, the idea that you need this kind of transformation in order to have uh, wider change. And why did you feel at the time and that this idea was being lost or being forgotten? I think because of my own experience of um, going, I, I went into the uh, Labour Party and I used to go to the Young Socialists in uh, Hackney, the East 
London area, which I lived in. And um, you never heard anything very much about women or even even women's participation in things like the Russian Revolution. And um, so because the kind of Marxism that I encountered in my practical daily life didn't include it, and then when people got involved through this, you know, the revolutionary student movement and or radical student movement, we they, we were very much um, auxiliary. We didn't have a very central role as women in it. And, and what was the reception of your book? I mean, amongst amongst your your female comrades, like, what? How did they see your book, and what did they take from it? The, the reception um, was pretty enthusiastic, actually. Uh, we uh, partly we didn't really have very many books. Uh, there was a few things like uh, Kate Millett's book had come out. And so to, to my, I hadn't really worked all this out, but the book got seized by people and translated into lots and lots of different languages. Um, and, and sometimes it was translated uh, illegally, you know, without official permission. So when in later life I I'd encountered women who'd read it Sometimes in French, uh, uh, Arab women read it, and then it um, it also even reached uh, women in Afghanistan. I met them, who women who were you know involved in left politics in Afga- Afghanistan. I met them in the 1980s, and they knew about the book. They it seemed to travel quite a lot because it was translated into French and it was translated into Spanish. And what were some of the things that they said to you about it? Oh, well, they 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 were surprised to meet the person who'd written this book. Sometimes people thought I must be very very old. You know, they were surprised that I was sort of their age. <laughs> I see. It must have been actually quite quite flattering to uh, to meet. These yes, people. it was. It was very complicated though because our women's liberation movement in the seventies. Uh, in Britain was immensely suspicious of any individual popping up above other individuals because we wanted so much to have um, equal association. And in fact, um, some uh, women left the women's liberation group I was in in North London because I'd signed my name on my book. Because it's so strange now, because people are so involved with celebrity, individual celebrity. Wow, that's that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> but people in America were much. I went to America in 1974, and there I was completely thrown because in Britain people, oh, it's putting your name on a book. And then when I got to America, people were enthusiastic. I couldn't believe it. And, and in Britain, people don't say things like, I really liked your book, you know. And in, in America, people are openly enthusiastic, and I didn't know quite what to do. It got totally um, abashed and thought, oh, I, I, I was quite embarrassed. People were much more upfront. But I started, from that time in 74, I started 
to make really close friends in America, which lasted right through my life, who socialist feminists. And, and, and let me ask you about that connection with uh, feminists in, you know, you, you being feminist in Britain and socialist feminists and socialist feminists in the United States. How did your worldviews connect and diverge and the, the particular struggles you're dealing with in Britain and in America, how much did they translate kind of transnationally? They were really close because actually a lot of Americans had been around in Britain um, in around the time of the Vietnam War. Um, they were studying in, in Britain and the, the student movement was really international. Um, and so we were we were quite used to having contact through the student movement and the left before the women's liberation movement. Um, some uh, people were were over from America, and we were hearing about the the new left in America through them. And then when the first women's liberation groups formed in Britain. There was a group in Tufnell Park, which is in north of London, and Henry Wirtis's wife, Shelley Wirtis, and Sue O'Sullivan were in that group. Shelley went back to Boston with Henry, and Henry had been part of um, a group in Wisconsin who... Um, he had links through his family to the Communist Party, and he became a kind of bridge between the old left and the new in Wisconsin. Um, and uh, Paul Buell wrote about um, him in in the book that he did on the left there. And Sue O'Sullivan remained in Britain. She was married initially to a British guy, and they later split up. And she played a really crucial role as um, a socialist feminist lesbian in women's liberation in Britain. So that group, that original group, in early group in Tufnell Park, which formed, I think, in 1969, before the first women's liberation conference in Britain, was very was very influential. And there are photographs of Shelley chairing the first Women's Liberation Conference in 1970, and there are pictures of Sue O'Sullivan at that conference. So there's a, a lot of personal interconnection, really, between um, the, both Canadians and Americans and people in Britain. But we we also had contact with German women who were socialist feminists and French women in those very early times. Let's talk about some of the history that you do chronicle in the book. Um, first, you you begin the book in in late 16th, 17th, and into the 18th centuries. And, and so, what impact did the Enlightenment and Enlightenment thought have on early feminist ideas um, in in the late uh, 18th and into the 19th century? Perhaps the significant. I mean, although the French Revolution has a rather ropey history on women but it did have these people who were who were writing about women's position um and because of the revolution they were connecting the emancipation of women to uh, a wider revolutionary change 
And um, that's the context that Mary Wollstonecraft came out of. In fact, I, I discovered Mary Wollstonecraft when I was quite young through a biography um, of William Godwin that I'd found when I was on holiday uh, in uh, when I was, you know, still at school. And I sort of liked her. Um, I, I think I, I liked the fact that there is her emphasis on reason, but also um, the impact of romantic uh, ideas of self-expression in her in her writing, and the personal defiance. I, I found her even before I'd even thought about feminism. I kind of had a rather um, biased view that you know the suffrage movement was a bit boring and they were all rather stuffy and but actually it it was true that the sections of the more respectable liberal suffrage movement was horrified about Mary Wollstonecraft because she didn't live a, live a formally moral life um and the people who honored her tended to be trade union early trade union uh, people or Owenite um, cooperators who um, talked of, about equal pay even in the early 19th century and um, later on in the 19th century, free thinkers in Britain and in America, the anarchist Emma Goldman who related to her. So she was her memory was carried on through the 19th century through these little underground channels and then in the early 20th century she really uh, begins to have a, a more general influence on people who were influenced by suff- women influenced by suffrage can you speak a little bit about who mary uh, wollstonecraft was who was she yeah she um was uh born into what was called the middling people in the 18th century, um, she um, did what lots of women who had some education did. She became uh, a school teacher, trying to work first as a governess and then running a small school. And um, she fell in with a group of um, thoughtful, non-conforming uh, writers in London who were influenced by ideas coming over from uh, France, from the Enlightenment, which um, stressed the importance of reason. Um, And by ideas from the French Revolution of the um, need for uh, equality. So she takes those general ideas and relates them in her her book, The Vindication of the Rights of Women, to women. Now, Marxism and, and Marxist analysis has had an enormous influence on feminism beginning in the, you know, particularly in the late 19th century as both feminists begin to integrate in or be inspired by the socialist movements developing in Europe. And so what did Marxism provide feminism and, and what is your relationship with Marxism? Um, well, it's, I'm not sure really you can say that that Marxism influences exactly feminists in the late 19th century because feminists tended to have quite a narrow meaning in in the late 19th century. 
uh, it tended to mean the women who were more like, I guess you'd say, you know, radical separatist feminism. Um, now it it was associated with a, a strand in the, in the women's movement that was um, uh, very suspicious of um, men and critical uh, of men and wanted to organize a, a completely away from men. So they they that bit is and I, really the the influence on the suffrage people was probably. Uh, a form of radical liberalism, which emphasised very much the um, uh, supremacy of the individual, and that gave women an important argument for demanding um, s- both the vote and also uh, an idea of self-sovereignty, which could lead to people advocating birth control. Um, and there's... Uh, that anarchist minority in the United States who take it on to um, talk about free love and uh, really start campaigning from the 1870s for uh, contraception. Women um, were campaigning in America already for, for contraception then. But um, the in the the Marxist women in the late 19th century, I think, would be influenced by uh, Babel, probably, and read Babel and be um, excited by ideas of cooperation and the need for social welfare and the importance of social provision for women as an alternative to the individual family. Um, So... I, 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 and the numbers of people who actually read Marx and Engels in Britain is still it's fairly small, so it's not really that kind of uh, socialism, although socialism influences quite a, a lot of women, so that, that they're more influenced by... Um, they, in Britain, people read Charlotte Perkins Gilman and Bellamy, so it's more that kind of evolutionary uh, socialism um, that they were... Very, and it's not really until um, probably the early tw- 20th century and really the 1920s, um, or, because Ed, Edward Carpenter, who I've written about, wrote a, a book in the mid-1890s called Love's Coming of Age, in which... He couldn't talk about homosexual love, which is what his real interests were, but he is very affirmative about women's freedom. And although he was aware of um, Marx and Engels and read them, he's, uh, and some of his ideas are definitely influenced by them, but it's, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's not exactly Marxism, um, his socialism, because it's very much... Um, affected by um, a, a more kind of moral vision of um, socialism, you know, person, personal morality and the need to change society because it harms people. It wasn't attempting to really be scientific in the way that uh, Marxism of, of a certain kind was said. And what about for you and your politics? I was uh, very much influenced by Marx. I, uh, 
I I came across Marx uh, first through reading a rather popular book um, about um, history, and I I came across this, this this term dialectics, and I thought, oh, this is really exciting. This is I think history is really like this. And I remember running down the corridor at school to tell a friend, oh, this is really interesting. There's this thing called dialectics. <laughs> And then I I wandered off into um, mystical stuff and the beats and uh, forgot about it a bit and then came back when I was at university when I was about 19 and um, because of my boyfriend who was uh, later to become um, an economist called Bob, Bob Rothorn, I'd sat and read Marx and um Engels and particularly got excited about Marx. I mean, I just sat and read. Um, we had to do one essay when I was at university, and in that essay, we one of the topics we could choose could was Marx, and I chose it and did a really bad essay because I was totally overwhelmed by reading all this stuff. But I I, I read to the Finland station um, and liked that. And so, what what was attractive? What what about Marxism attracted you? I I found the arguments about things like labor theory of value and things rather difficult to follow, but I loved the well, there was lots of history in Capital Volume One, so I loved all the history and the use of all the blue books and things, and I I liked the condition of the English working class by Engels for that reason too. And because I came from the north of England, you could still see in the structure of the cities the, the speeches that he talks about in Manchester, the ways in which they would have the elegant frontages and then the working class scruffy houses behind so that the bourgeoisie in travelling to work wasn't troubled by the sight of poverty. So it all felt very living, really. Um and so when I did Women Resistance and Revolution, I just sat and read everything I could find by Marx and Engels um, about that related in some way to women. But I, I think in a more general way, I was excited by this way of thinking that reached out to so many areas of life. And being young, it was exciting to have something that seemed to explain everything. Um, and then gradually as I started to think more about women, it kind of came home to me that there were quite a few things that they hadn't thought about. One of the most noticeable being that although the idea of reproduction of daily life and biological reproduction were really really crucial additions to thinking about women's position, it left women without any agency and in that period we were really stressing active agency in the 60s and early 70s and I was very much influenced by that kind of politics and I was always interested in anarchism and anarcho-syndicalism too so um, it was clear to me that there was something missing within Marxism because it didn't seem to have much scope for women to be themselves active agents. You 
were meant to sort of sit back and twiddle your thumbs and wait until the guys had sorted it all out. Well, let, let's talk about a, a moment in history where women's agency is actually incredibly crucial, and, and that is the uh, women's participation in the Russian Revolution. So uh, talk about the importance, uh, the role of women in the Russian Revolution and its influence on issues of, of women's emancipation, feminism, but also it's the restrictions it also put on it, put on those things. Well, that was a real discovery for me because I'd sat in so many meetings um, in which um, people had talked about the character of the Russian Revolution and the, um, whether it was state capitalist or whether it was degenerate worker state, but very little about um, what women had done. I um, I'd read in, in uh, Trotsky that you know women played this important role in the early days of the revolution. But it was discovering Alexandra Kollontai's writing. Um, actually, through reading First Reich, The Sexual Revolution, and uh, following her up in the British Museum and reading everything I uh, could find by her in English. And then um, a group of us got together and uh, a woman... Trans, started to translate some of her uh, writings and we produced uh, a pamphlet and then some other people did another pamphlet. We, had, we didn't have much access, uh, you know, to stuff that wasn't translated because I can't speak Russian. And also it was really difficult at that time to get into the Russian archives. Um, a, a young woman called Alex Holt, who I became friendly with, um, did get in, um, and she always used to chuckle that it was because she was, um, I mean, she <laughs> was the kind of looks that Russian men thought was very nice. She had lots of blonde girls, and she was slightly chubby, and they thought that she was wonderful, and so she managed by some kind of crafty way to to get into the archives, whereas other foreign scholars didn't manage to get in by because of her charms. <laughs> and so we started to talk about um, uh, women in the Russian Revolution, and I, um, I read everything I could um, I, in English that I could find. I was helped um, by uh, an older woman who had... Uh, friends who she'd been in the Communist Party, I think, and she had friends who had new, and she had a collection of newspaper cuttings that were quite useful. So I use those, but I, I'm mainly in that in the chapter in Women's Resistance and Revolution focused on the period up to the end of the 1920s. And what, what what struck you about the the women's participation and Kolontai, of course, who is an important figure. Um, and the politics of that period. Well, the the, the sayings of the the women at the congresses uh, really struck home. I mean, they they talked about. Um, I mean, one woman talked about uh, how the men were in in meetings. The man that she was with would talk about the in abstract about women's important role, and then, but actually, she was expected to stay in the background, and she used to sort of creep in to listen to the meetings. But the the, the 
conflict between um, rhetoric and um, personal practice was um, was very was very interesting to me because it's something that I I had encountered, and um, so I I. I was able to pick up on those kinds of things that I could get from little um, cameos of things that people had said. The, uh, I mean, the incredibly overt oppression of the mass of Russian women was, you know, very far away from anything I'd experienced. The extreme violence and the um, the hardship of the peasant women who went to to the congresses that. Alexandra Kolontai and others organized. It was remote, but many of the things that they were talking about, and Kolontai deals in her novels with the the gaps in uh, what's officially being done and what actually goes on. Um, She does that really well. And also the complications of um, demanding sexual freedom and then there's the impact that that could have on on others, including other women. So there's uh, there, there was a, a dimension that I'd I'd never ever heard discussed in any political meeting, and seemed to be to me really important because that was things I'd noticed in daily life, but those were just seen as private things and not part of politics. So uh, when women's liberation began, we tried to connect personal and, and politics and that did have problems about it but it, I think it is really important and it brought into the political sphere things that had been um, excluded before. So you've been active politically and intellectually for, for decades now. Um, yes, I'm a dinosaur. I, I started to become... Um, active in the early 60s and that was from the uh, from the influence of Bob Rothorn and other another friend called Judith Oakley who I met when I went to university so it, it, given your your long tenure as, as an activist as a socialist as a feminist how do you regard feminism today what what is your your thoughts on it and and where what strengths does it have and and what weaknesses do you see well, um, I, I, I couldn't say in fantastic detail, but it's great that there has been um, this revival in, with a new generation. And I, I think some of it came partly um, from uh, the, the earlier anti-capitalist movement. And because, because women were in these... Um, uh, movements. It's often the case that you get um, an awareness because women find themselves talking to one another through those groups. Um, but also, I think that young women um, have got. Each generation has had higher expectations about what should be happening to them. I mean, people who um, were twenty years older than us would say. Well, your generation has got expectations um, which are completely new, you know, different from things that we could have had. And I think young women's expectations, partly because of the impact of women's liberation in the past, have, uh, without 
questioning, you know, they assume certain things should be so. And they're pretty shocked when they learn about things that might have happened to us in in the 60s. It seems it must seem very archaic. Um, I think there's um, a, a minority who are interested in making connections to to other movements. I don't I don't know how extensive that is, um, but I I I just think that's incredibly important because I don't think that women can go it alone. I believe that um, women's freedom necessarily involves changing other aspects of society. And although this kind of modern capitalism held out a kind of idea of freedom, it's a, a freedom for quite a narrow group of women, and it also doesn't um, take into account women's um, situation as soon as um, children, you know, children come along, because it's still so difficult to combine work with caring for children. When we said twenty-four hour nurseries, actually, we didn't imagine the children would be there twenty-four hours. It was because somebody said, "Well, women work shifts, and they need to." be able to leave children um, if they're doing a night shift. That's how it came about. But people imagined it was these brutal feminists who were going to dump these little kitty wrinkles there for 24 hours. <laughs> yeah, I just saw a documentary about the kibbutz movement in Israel in the, in the late 40s and in early 50s, and it pretty much was kind of like that. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's a fascinating. Yes, we history. did used to read about the the kibbutz. I remember like before the women's liberation, um, but the the sort of people who came over who influenced our ideas about childcare tended to be from the American New Left. So there was a quite a uh, an emphasis on parents forming groups. But that was only practical if you were sort of student types, really. Um, so eventually we came to form some kind of um, compromise. We developed the ideas about community nurseries, which could get funding from the state, but would have a lot of um, involvement of parents, both men and women, and um, regardless of... Um, you know, different sexual choices so that the two, two, two women caring for children would be also part of the group. We'd, the, the whole issue of lesbianism came up um, within quite early on in, in women's liberation and a, a lot of people, um, including myself, had to have definite... Um, education on this because I hadn't really taken into account being uh, seeing things from a completely heterosexual perspective. That there were a group of uh, socialist feminist lesbian women who didn't completely um, just attack us, they, who, the ones who were a bit unaware. They, um, they did take us under, the, you know, their, they, they took on our education. <laughs> But I, I think it probably is hard for people to 
recognize if it depends on whether people have been in a movement but the being in a movement in itself it's it's so much you learn so much and become confident and i i think that must have happened with occupy in america um and once you get that kind of confidence you start questioning and you don't accept things that people tell you have to be so yeah, I think I mean a lot of what you you've said in in our conversation now. I think it's it's actually the the participation, presence in a movement, and the community that comes out of that is is really important. Not just for one's individual personal education, but also for the empowerment, the the feeling that you are part of a a group, a community of people who are fighting, struggling, working together. Uh, and and that that's a key thing, this kind of cultural aspect of it. Yes, and it's so hard to explain if people haven't been through that. It sounds it get, becomes rather kind of mystical, and <laughs> you know, so people look at you and sort of. There were periods when there weren't movements so much like that. Uh, after um, our our movement died, really, from the late. In Britain, from the late 1980s, there wasn't much signs of actual movement, although there was a lot of academic feminism and discussion of concepts, but not that sense of being in a movement together. And actually, um, it goes on through life. I mean, my friends are still people who I was connected to in the 70s and 60s, still many friends. But it means that I have an enormous group of people who I always worry about keeping in contact with. And then as the years have gone by, I've accumulated more. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. It probably takes a lot of your time staying in contact with all of these people. I mean, I don't I don't profess to have as many people, but even the few I do have, it does take a lot of time. <laughs> so. I've also developed a, a, a thing, a condition that I call meeting-itis, which is that I can't. I dread meetings now. I mean, not only did I have all these ones, oh, for 10 years we were kind of non-stop active in um, East, East London where I lived, uh, you know, campaigning for abortion, campaigning for um, various forms of community care, particularly uh, for under fives. There was a very strong group of, you know, people campaigning for venture playgrounds, nurseries, um, drop-in centers and things. This is in the 70s. And then um, in the 1980s, I got involved with the Ken Livingston London Greater London Council. So then there were more meetings to do with that. And uh, by in the early, in the late 80s and um, early 90s, I um, got involved with movements that were around global organizing of um, women in um, uh, many different countries like India or Sri Lanka and um, uh, Africa. So I got involved with a whole other lot. <laughs> and uh, by the two, early 2000s, I thought, I really, um, I've got a concept. I was working full-time then at Manchester University, and I really wanted to write history again. So I turned back to writing history, and I've, that's more what I've done 
in the um, the last decade or so. So your your book, Women, Resistance, and Revolution, is now part of Verso's uh, Radical Thinker series, and it was reissued again in 2014. So what do you see, what is the continuing relevance of your book uh, as you see it, this being the, you know, the 100 years since the Russian Revolution and now 45 years since you published, first published it? Yes. Uh, well, I, I suppose that when I wrote it, I, I did think, I think I thought, got to be careful. We're not going to have dramatic change in, except perhaps in about 20 years or something. I thought that was really cautious. And instead, of course, I think we got Thatcher. But uh, I, in the present context, I hope that it would help women in the new generation to set off um, on the long process of rethinking history and discovering really how much has been done in the past. I also um, hope that Stuff I Write strengthens awareness of how to connect women's freedom with um, and equality with um, how it interconnects with wider aspects of human emancipation because I, I don't I think you can push up a few individual women within capitalism on the basis of um, simply talking on things like equal opportunities but you need a much wider vision of equality to challenge what actually is uh, in some ways an even more daunting power of um, Capitalism now. That was Sheila Robotham, an internationally known historian of, of feminism and radical social movements. She's the author of groundbreaking books like Women, Resistance, and Revolution, Women's Consciousness, Man's World, and Hidden from History, among several others published by Verso. I'm your host, Sean Gillery, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, Please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it's not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at seansrussiablog.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. You can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye!